0: Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. Good morning, and I'm looking out my studio window up here in Fort Collins, and I see sunshine, and it's supposed to be in the 40s today, I think. So we're... We are maybe turning the corner on some of this, although the projection for the next uh, couple of weeks, the temperatures are going to be nice, but they're still going to be below average. And we've got uh, some pretty hard pieces of ice out on the lakes yet. We'll talk about those conditions during the show and if they're safe and what the bite is like. Uh, we'll start getting open water. We're going to start talking about that more. We're going to see, obviously, rivers are going to get better and better and uh You'll start to see in some places the ice receding. And, of course, the mountains are going to have winter conditions for a while yet. And they will be uh, – there's a lot of snow up there, which is a good thing. We're going to talk about that, too, that as much as we need it, it's going to present some challenges off and on as, as we do our outdoor recreation and our spring, depending on the runoff. Uh, second hour towards the end, Chad Lachance is going to join us. And he is going to um, talk cooking Uh, He's going to talk about one-pan dishes for fish and game. Chad and and I both are kind of foodies. We really get into that stuff. So we love those segments when Chad comes on and uh, shares a recipe with us. And uh, we like that a lot. But But let's get back to the snowpack thing. That could have tremendous impact as we move forward into the spring. In fact, joining us from Trout Magazine, he's the editor of Trout Magazine, He's an author, many books that we talked about, and he's also I also understand he's got a new column coming up, Kirk Dieter, good morning, Kirk morning, Terry. How are you today? I'm doing great. you know, I want to talk about some of your writing and what the magazine is doing and a few things. but I was just talking about the snowpack and living in Steamboat Springs. Nobody's more aware of the snow we've gotten this winter than you are. <laughs> we are in the bulls out of here in Steamboat.
1: And it's snowing right now again, just a little bit. It's supposed to let off later today, but yeah, we've got over 300 inches. It's been a banner year for sure. And as, you know, we
0: need this water. Uh, this is going to be a life-saving year. Although we need several good years, but <clears throat> this is certainly going to help. And at least on the Colorado part of it, uh, but it's also going to present some challenges as a fly fisherman. Looking forward to. I know you fish the tail waters right now when you can get out. Uh, but there's been some problems there because of low water. But it's it could be a difficult or it could be an exciting spring, to say the least, for fly fishermen, don't you think? I think so, for sure. And, and it all comes down to how fast things melt.
1: You know, we have all this snow, which is great, and we're thankful for that. But if we get a super hot, rainy May... Uh, it's all going to go fast and it's going to come down and cause floods and stuff like that. It could be challenging. So what we're really hoping for is a sustained, slow, normal runoff. And if that's the case, we're going to have great fishing all the way through July and into August, which has not
0: been the case the last few years, as you know. Oh, right. We've had that river closures. We've had warm water. We've had voluntary actions to protect the fish. It's been hard on the fisheries too. You know, when we talk about a normal runoff, if we get a runoff, now if we get a surge of flood, if this comes down too quick, people stay away from the water, certainly don't go in it, because tragedy can happen so quickly, and it's, it's just almost impossible. But if we get just high runoff by normal melt, it can be different to fish it, but it's certainly not impossible. No, in fact,
1: I liked it when the water's took a little off color, that early season streamer fishing with bright flies. That can be great. You know, the nymph fishing is good. along. You just have to focus along the edges because the fish are smart. They know. They don't want to be on a treadmill all the time. So they'll get into that slack water near the feeding lanes. And uh, you can do really well, especially, you know, April is a great month for that. And a little bit before the runoff is probably my favorite time of year to fish, to be honest with
0: you. Yeah, just, well, you know, I think there's another uh, aspect of that, and that's the fact that, We all get a little cabin fever, and even though we may get out and do some tailwaters or I do some ice fishing in addition to that, or we may find a few places where we can go or we take a trip, we're anxious to get back on our favorite rivers, and we always want to get, so it's exciting. It's, you coming from the Midwest, you're aware that, you know, there's seasons out there, like in Minnesota, so the opening of fishing is a big deal. And when those rivers are finally available, it's kind of like the opening for us. And uh, it's exciting and great as long as it's at least somewhat fishable. That's right. I'm from in Wisconsin, and then Michigan.
1: And uh, last Saturday in April was always our opener, Uh, literally when the seasons opened on a number of rivers. And we would have family gatherings specifically around that. Didn't catch a lot of fish, but, you know, we ate well. and drank a little wine and had some storytelling and all that stuff but it was really just uh you know thank being thankful for the winter ending and looking forward to the season ahead i i think about the opening and in like almost like i think about holidays like you know christmas
0: and, and fourth of july well the same in minnesota where, where i used to say i grew up karen says i just got older but <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, there was that in space. And our, our opener was the second Saturday in May, and it was the same kind of a deal. You know, the closest thing we have to that here, and you never know when it's going to be, is probably the opening of Spitty Mountain Reservoir. I love that we have year round seasons here, and I think our wood fisheries are fairly well managed. I don't have a problem with that. But you do lose that day of anticipation that's a little different. It's people who've never experienced that. It is a different aspect. And let's move on because we have a lot of things I want to cover with you. And uh, one of the things is what's going on in fly fishing itself. Uh, the show season seems to reflect it. we're headed for a good um, participation year in the fly fishing venues. Yeah, you, we just had the fly fishing show in Denver And it was
1: record crowds. I mean, I've never seen anything, heard anything like that. I wasn't able to make it myself, but I've had a number of friends who were there. And now this weekend, this is a fly fishing show in Pleasanton, California. By all accounts, east to west, north-south, you know, the, the cabin fever, as you described it, has gotten people really fired up about the fishing. And the levels of participation now in those shows, after COVID slowed things down for a couple years, I think it's more than it's ever been. And uh, so we're looking at, you know, we're looking at good enthusiasm, good sales and good, you know, business for the outfitters and so forth. But, we're you know, we anglers are going to have to, you know, make sure that we get off the
0: beaten path a little bit more if we want to avoid the crowds, that's for sure. Yeah, some of the, it's going to be worthwhile to maybe hike up into Rocky Mountain National Park or some of the wilderness areas, or to just get off the road a little bit, or follow the river to a place where you can't just walk from your car. But you know, that being said, too, everybody who is going to be out there, whether you're newly into fly fishing or any kind of fishing, or you're experienced, uh, show some consideration and ethic. We're all right. we're all out there for the same reason. Just make it fun. It's supposed to be in. in it's supposed to be enjoyable. That's right, Terry. I think that there's a new movement afoot.
1: You know, several years ago, with all the good technology we have, people were able to catch more fish. And we catch and release anglers uh, are able to catch fish and let them go, and, and that's great. But maybe you don't even have to catch that many fish to call it a good day, right? I, I've i always been more uh, attracted to fishing for the stuff other than pulling out fish. I like to just watch the birds and feel the water on my legs and and be with people and and chat and and all those things. So I think that as we try to make our rivers more sustainable and more people are participating, um, there's a real strong movement afoot for people to just kind of know their limits and catch what they can but really appreciate what you do and everything that's around you more than just racking up numbers these
0: days. I couldn't agree more. It's not a, it's, I mean, it does get competitive. If you and I were out fishing together, I'm sure the trash talk would be enormous, but in all honesty, it's the camaraderie. It's being in the outdoors, as you said, and experience everything else around you. We're going to talk about that a little bit in another segment later when we talk turkey hunting and, and just being outdoors and experiencing the things around you and taking a breath. You know, it, it, we're not fishing to sustain ourselves anymore, so enjoy the activity. Uh, I want to switch gears up before we run out of time, cover a couple more things. One is what's going on in the current issue of Trout Magazine. Maybe you should explain to people what Trout Magazine is, but you've um, you got some things. You told me you're focusing on some new writers, and some stuff on do-it-yourself fishing is becoming more prominent.
1: That's exactly right. I Um, Trout Magazine is the national publication for Trout Unlimited. I've been the editor for the last 11 years. Uh, It's been a a great process for me and it's coming home and it puts the conservation ethos back into a lot of what I've written back, going back to the field and stream days and all that stuff. But um, this issue of Trout Magazine, I intentionally wanted to focus on new voices and new storytellers. And so I remember when I got my first break, John Randolph from Fly Fisherman gave me a story you know, many, too many years ago to count now. But uh, seeing my name in print on a story about a topic that I love so much really meant a lot to me, and it changed my life. And so this issue, we have no fewer than 10 uh, photographers and writers who are making their debut or at least debut in a in the national print publication. So I'm really proud of how it turned out. It was a great editing job, uh, process for me, a challenge for me, but it was great, and you know to see them all be so satisfied with how it all turned out has been great. So I'm I'm, I'm excited about the, this current issue of Trout, and we're just going to keep rolling. We, you know, those of you
0: who want to write for Trout, or you know, contact me. I'm always looking for new talent. You know, it, it, you made the point about seeing your name there, and, of course, you and I both were mentored by a great man, Charlie Myers, and we've been in the outdoor industry for a long time. And, you know, I, I start to think I'm glad to see new blood there. I don't write very much anymore. Glad to see there's new blood there and new people coming in, and you know what? One of the phenomena that I see when I read other people, especially new upcoming guys, uh, is the fact that... You know, if you've been at it as long as we have, sometimes you feel like you're repeating yourself to the audience. Although we have new audiences all the time, we lose sight of that. And I I quit going over some things. And I'll read a new writer or listen to a new seminar speaker, and I'll go, I was telling Karen this the other day, I used to know that. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: right. That's right. You know, know, (laughs) know, the other thing is I think that people, uh, you know, it's a stereotype now that, Younger generations particularly are more interested in videos and handheld devices and and Instagram and not the deep dive stuff that we grew up doing. And I couldn't think that that's further from the truth. If you give people the opportunity, there are great fine art photographers and great voices, great essayists, great reporters, great writers, uh, you know, just looking for a chance and a platform to show their work. And so Trout is one of those unique things. Uh, that we're able to do that, and so we're going to continue
0: to do that. Two more things. One thing real quick. You mentioned, you and I talked earlier in the week, and you mentioned the trend to more do-it-yourself fishing, where people aren't necessarily getting a guide, or they may not even have had a a mentor as a child, but they're taking up fishing a little later in life. But the new generation, because of the resources available, they kind of dig into it and go out and venture on their own, don't they? They sure do. And that's a great thing because I think if you, you know, I, I wrote in a new
1: column that I have called The True Cast. It comes out on Fridays from Trout Unlimited. You'd go to tu.org to sign up and, and get that for free. But, uh, you know, failure is an option was one of my column titles, and, and, and that's just fine with me because I learned like you learned and most of us do, you know, by trial and error and getting your boots wet and seeing what works and what doesn't work. And it's okay to – uh get stuck every once in a while yes, yeah, and you learn that way but it's also super satisfying when you do things that you've been working on yourself and you go out and it all connects together and you're able to catch a fish there's no higher satisfaction
0: than doing it by yourself you're right. And we, you and I have both learned that from the music industry too, and accomplishing things that there's so many things in life that you all of a sudden reach a point of satisfaction. Hey, real quick, um, what's the status of your books? Tell people what's available. Sure. Thank you, Terry. I you
1: know, co-authored with, with, uh, Charlie Myers, the little red book of Fly fishing and that keeps going. And that's a great primer for those of you who want to do it yourself. Lots of little tips, simple, meant to make it so it's not rocket science. And then Chris Hunt and I last week, or last year, rather, uh, we released a sequel to The Little Red Book. It's called The Little Black Book of Fly Fishing, and that's more expert in level. But still, simple tips, easy to understand, easy to digest, and it's meant to help people along on their own path. And those are available online or at your local fly shops? Absolutely. You know, I, I love to have people go get them at the fly shops, because i like to support the fly shops most of all but if you can't find them
0: there you can certainly find them online you know what we got to get together and get on the river we got to go but get on the river this year and if we can't we at least got to play guitar and have a glass of wine well that's easy oh, absolutely anytime my friend
2: i'm looking <laughs> forward right.
0: to let's snow melt once the snow melts we'll get after it i promise all right thanks kirk all right buddy take care you bet Kirk Nieder from uh, Trout Magazine, great resource. We'll get him on more often. He gets in a traveling mode sometimes, but always great topics. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the fish pathologist is going to join us and talk about aquatic animal health program in Colorado right here on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Woodstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You know, um, we talk a lot about Parks and Wildlife. They've been part of this radio show for going on 26 years. And uh, we're all familiar with the game management, the park management things. But there's other layers to that and a lot of activity it takes to make that happen. And joining us, uh, he's a fish pathologist for CPW, is John Drennan. Good morning, John. Hi, Terry. Hey, thanks for having me on your show. Well, thanks for coming. I think it's important a lot of times to explain to people, oh, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that maybe doesn't get publicized, but managing fish and game, and you're specifically aquatic, uh, is a lot more involved than just setting seasons and stocking or maintaining habitat. Um, you run what's called uh, the Aquatic Animal Health Program. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah, so our, our aquatic animal health lab um is in, it's located in Brush, Colorado, but um, obviously we're all over the state. Um, and our laboratory is actually almost fully integrated. We 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 take samples from fish, but we we can process virology samples, bacteriology samples. Uh, we have a parasitology lab that primarily—I'm sure you guys are aware of Myxobolus cerebralis and whirling disease. So we 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 work on that, and then we have a molecular lab um, that has. State of the art, like PCR equipment, Um, we can do. We can actually do all the COVID testing. You know, the same equipment that you would use during the COVID stuff. Um, The only thing we don't do is we don't do histology, so we send that out, um, and then we get samples back from there. But uh, you know, one of our aspects is regulatory activity. So um, I'm in charge of any importations of fish or eggs that come into the state, and they need to. We need to make sure that they're pathogen-free or have been tested for certain pathogens that we're looking for. Um, also, We also review and approve aquaculture permits within the state of Colorado. Um, and so getting to your point, um, another aspect that we do is disease testing. And so uh, our lab goes out and we, we do all the state fish hatcheries and other rearing units. We inspect them. Uh, for certain pathogens that are on our prohibited or t- regulated list. Um, so that's a, at the minimum, that's what we do. And so all of our hatcheries are inspected and they get like a, uh, we keep a, a database like th- at least three years of uh, pathogen free. And so that the guy, the, and then we also do a bunch of free ranging uh, populations. We inspect them because Basically, we don't want to move any fish or gametes—when I gametes, I say um, eggs—to from one body of water to another, or like eggs to our hatcheries. So the whole 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 idea is to try to minimize the spread of any pathogen that might impact the hatchery system or other watersheds. And um, you probably are aware, you know, like uh, the walleye spawn at Pueblo or Chatfield or Cherry Creek. I mean, so we're there inspecting those fish those broodstock as they're spawning the eggs um, to make sure that we're not bringing pathogens into the hatchery system, uh, you know, Kokanee, um, Dolores, Nighthorse, Wolford, all those places. We're inspecting all those, uh, those wild spawns out there. Um, brown trout would be like in Tarot or North Delaney. Um, Art Grayling at Joe Wright. So you can see that we're all over the place, right? Um, yeah,
0: and, it, and, and it's so important to maintain the health of these fisheries because, well, first of all, very few of the fish species in Colorado are native that we consider so we right. sport, sport yeah. fish. So they don't have, and, and that's what happened with whirling disease when it showed up here. Um, they didn't have any natural immunity to it, uh, and that was something I'm sure you were heavily involved in. And that's been a pretty successful operation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have some uh, different management tools for that with, like, disease-resistant strains of rainbows and uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife. We know they've done intensive surveillance. We pretty much know almost wherever Mixabolus is in the water, it, what streams, bodies of water. Um, we've got a pretty good handle on that on that pathogen. Um,
0: what... what a- no, well, I was just going to say, other than, you know, okay, we're, we're doing your, your testing that's kind of your routine testing or your normal scope of activity, but what would trigger maybe something where you would, uh, would be called in out, out of the normal? Would that be diseased fish or the look of diseased fish or, or fish dying off? What, what triggers you to maybe go out and become the detectives
2: in some cases? Yeah. So another, uh, another part of the job, um, that we do is that, uh, if a hatchery manager calls us up and says, I got sick fish, then, uh, uh, we'll go out there and examine the fish and just try to figure out what's causing the, the, the disease, whether it's infectious or non-infectious and, and then come up with a treatment plan. Um, If you ever watch CSI on TV, it's kind of like that. We show up with our microscopes and our kits and uh, auger plates for bacteriology. We might take virology samples and stuff and bring them back to the lab and try to isolate what's going on. Um, It's kind of an esoteric field, but it's actually really neat to try to solve those problems, right? Um, Um, Right. and 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 in the wild, if there's a fish kill, then they'll call us. Sometimes they'll call us up and we'll go out there and try to figure out what caused the fish kill.
0: Right. No. right, and it's such a necessary function of maintaining the fisheries in an outdoor state, especially like Colorado. And when we do get, let's just say a West Lake, for instance, up in the Red mm-hmm. Feathers area, last year I think they discovered anchor worm. Were you brought
2: in to say, okay, what's going on here? What can we do? I was. In fact, I, I showed up there uh, in August of 21 when it first came out. And, um, yeah, the fish were pretty lethargic and swimming along the banks and um uh it just it didn't look right so the biologist called me up and said hey come out and check it out and um so and started examining the fish and found out that they had anchor worm um and and, uh it was pretty heavy load on the rainbows right um yeah and i i think that And a place
0: like we're not—we don't have much time left. But I want to kind of get to another point that you and I have talked about in the past, and that's the point. Like we don't know what brought the anchor worm to West, but it could have been illegal moving of fish. That's why you're so involved. Whenever fish are moved or eggs are moved legally, that's why you're you're the you're part of CPW does such a job to investigate them. But you know, there's always these bucket biologists that want to take a fish and move it because they'd like to see that species where they fish. Well, first of all, you don't know what that's doing to just the biomass and the planning of the resource and how the biologist wants that lake to develop and how it's going to give the best, uh, the best resources for anglers. But it also could be this cause of something like this anchor. We're more now there, but they didn't stock West for a while. It's a, a reduced
2: population, right? Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, the the, the, buck, the bucket biologist might think that he's, you know, I, I want that strain of fish closer to me to fish, but he doesn't understand the possible movement of microorganisms that can cause uh, major problems to a whole a watershed, right? Yeah, um, because the the water that
0: you took that fish from, the fish might be resistant, but you might be introducing it to an area where they're not, right? Yes, Absolutely. Any last comments, yeah. people out there? We're running out of time, but what a great service you do in the maintaining the quality. And if you stop and think of the things we've gone through, whirling disease, we're dealing with some gill lice issues on salmon right now. And to know you guys yeah. are out there fighting and trying to make, come up with mitigation is really, a, you know, it's encouraging. Last comment from you.
2: No, uh, I, I say we also uh, do inspections for aquatic nuisance species at our hatcheries and other places like, quagga mussels, zebra mussels, that kind of stuff, uh, try to minimize um, the impacts of them. Plus, it it allows us to be able to trade fish with other states. Um, And we also work with boreal toad. Uh, So we're not just fish. It's uh, also amphibians as well. Um, So we have a lot of hats in the game, let's put it that way.
0: Well, John, thank you for the work you do in helping maintain the great resources we have. Okay, thanks. All right, that's John Drennan. John, great work. John, thanks for being on with us. We're going to take right, a quick thanks. time out. You bet. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, we're going to change things up. We're going to talk about pheasants and turkeys on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. Jax has locations up and down the front range. If you're an outdoor enthusiast, whatever you do, stop in and check them out. You're going to find it. They're going to become your new favorite source. Let's go to the phones. Joining us from Pheasants Forever is Bob Hicks. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Terry. How are you? I'm doing well. And while I was on hold waiting through the commercial break, I was trying to think how long have we known each other? I can remember filming an ice fishing show with you back when you were in the tackle business. I think Karen and you tried to film a turkey hunt one time. We've been kind of involved for quite a while. I'd say for at least 20 years, Terry. Uh, At least. Yeah, it is. It's been a long time. And you know what? One thing that's never gone is we both have that passion for the outdoors, and we both stayed in the outdoor community. And I think that's a great thing. I want to talk to you first of all about Pheasants Forever. You're with Pheasants Forever. I'm not sure your exact title. You're the regional representative in this area But tell people um, what, you know, you've got some banquets and some fundraisers coming up. Why
3: should they have an interest in Pheasants Forever? Sure. Terry, I just got back from our 40th anniversary national convention in Minneapolis. Uh, Pheasants Forever started in 1982, and um, it was, you know, started because of the need for upland bird habitat, and our model is very unique where our chapters, you know, hold annual fundraisers, and we're the only national conservation group that allows our chapters to have 100% decision-making on the money they spend. So I have uh, two banquets coming up next weekend, um, one in Greeley, one in Fort Collins, Loveland. Loveland. Um, the Loveland banquet is almost sold out. Uh, I talked to the president last night. There are about 20 tickets left as of last night. Uh, Greeley is the same night. Um, Normally it's not. Uh, I asked them to move it back a week because of the convention. And um, we've still got seats available there. And it's, it's the chapters one night to do their fundraising and, you know, raise funds. And then next month, South Metro Denver, which is our big chapter here in the Denver metropolitan area, will hold their annual fundraiser at the Arapahoe County Fairgrounds. Today is the last day to sign up for that chapter's early bird registration, which would get you an extra opportunity to win a shotgun. So, and you know, attending then, these, go ahead. Yeah, and then, you know, what our, our mission is, Pheasants Forever mission, is to enhance habitat for pheasants, quail, and other wildlife. Uh, we have a biologist that works in Craig, Colorado. Obviously, we don't have any pheasants in Craig but it's the largest elk herd in the world. She works on sage grouse, mule deer, elk habitat projects. And so we're not constricted to just pheasants, which is also really unique. Um, I have a team of five biologists in Colorado that work with private landowners and our partners at Colorado Parks and Wildlife and NRCS, um, you know, trying to work with producers to make their ranches and farms profitable, but yet setting aside, you know, maybe less desirable farming areas, you know, for good habitat for a host of species, not just pheasants.
0: Yeah, and you know, when people attend uh, a Pheasants Forever, the upcoming banquets, that's the one major fundraiser that Pheasants Forever does all year, but not only are you giving to a great affinity group, a great cause, promoting your own outdoor activities by helping build habitat, but you get to rub elbows with other people of similar interest. You trade tips, you get lots of information, and then you get a magazine, I believe. There's lots of benefits to being a member and lots of fun to <clears throat> belong to pheasants or quail unlimited, isn't there?
3: Yeah, there, there is. Um, you know, one of the big momentum pushes in in my organization right now is our women on the wing um i actually am having discussions right now with a group of ladies along the front range um and most of our chapters are already doing you know you know women outreach events um but you know we're starting to start women only chapters in the country and i'm hoping very soon to have Um, A women on the wing chapter which will be an an exclusive women's chapter but um, the push from women it's our number one it's our only thing in hunting that's growing you know everything else is declining but women are getting more involved and it's it's definitely something I want to see continue Uh, you know my mother you know, always supported my dad and us and going camping and hunting and fishing. And I've always said, you know, we got to get, you know, our, our moms involved and our wives. And, and if we have them involved, um, I think our future is bright, Terry. Well, and as far as my
0: mom was on a deer stand with me when I was 12 years old and Karen, my wife, who, you know, well, uh, she took her son's elk hunting. She was in the field with them. So, you know, you're right. It, it's, it's, Especially with the number of broken families, there are no now you need both male and female role models and mentors to take care of people because people are going to identify more before we move on to a, I want to talk a little bit about current conditions. Where can people find out more about the banquets?
3: So the easiest thing you know is go to our national website and there's a a button that says, you know find your local chapter." find, find an event. And all you have to do is type in Colorado and it'll pull up all the events. So it's just pheasantsforever.org. Um, that's the easiest thing. And then you can also just search South Metro pheasants forever has a really good website. So does Northern Colorado. So does Colorado Springs. Um, so that's the easiest way. And, and people can always contact me. Um, I'm, you know, easy to find on the internet. Just Google, you know, Colorado pheasants forever, and you can pull up my uh, phone numbers and email addresses. Easy. All right. Now, I
0: want to talk real quick before we run out of time. Here, we've been through some tough times the last couple of years in Colorado. What is what is the outlook for this coming fall? I know it's too early to tell, but what are your thoughts? And how did wh- where are we at in this? weather and habitat situation.
3: Well, Terry, you know, I was born and raised in Littleton, and I moved to northeastern Colorado two and a half years ago. And you know, right as right as I moved out there, the, the drought really cranked up, uh, as it has for the entire state for the most part. Um, according to my local neighbors that have been out there for more than a generation, we're having the hardest winter, you know, snowpack-wise in eastern Colorado that, that we've had since the, 70s and 80s and we needed it um it's been obviously tough on the wildlife but um we still have snow covering the landscape in eastern colorado um it's going to reap huge benefits for us this spring with growing quality habitat hopefully the moisture continues through the summer to where you know we can have really great nesting habitat um pheasants and quail and all ground nesting birds are boom-and-bust species. Um, we go through this every 5 to 10 years. We have droughts. Our birds decline. We get our moisture back, and our birds bounce back. So I'm optimistic that if we continue on the moisture we're, we're currently on, we should have really good hatches, um, really good habitat, and start rebuilding our population. That sounds great, Bob. I'm looking forward to that because we had some great years. If you
0: go back over the last 10 years, we had some phenomenal years, and then the last couple of years, of course, kind of went in the tank a little bit. Not that there weren't birds, and you should still be out there, because if you work, you can get some birds. And remember, part of the joy is being out there with your friends, doing the hunting. But uh, I think it's going to be... uh Uh, Hopefully a better season. We'll get more updates as we get closer to the fall. But hopefully we're reaching a turning point. Bob, there's one more thing I want to talk to you about that you and I used to spend a lot of time, and that's turkey hunting. But we're up against (laughs) the break. We're up against the break. Can I put you on hold and we'll come back and spend a few minutes and talk turkey? Love to talk to you about that. All right, we'll put Bob on hold and we'll be back and we'll talk turkey hunting right here on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan you're listening to terry wickstrom outdoors on 104.3 the fan brought to you in part by jack's outdoor gear you know we've been talking pheasants we're going to talk turkey if you're into going hunting after you attend that pheasants forever banquet if you don't win a shotgun which there's lots of chances for by the way head over to jackson they'll get you outfitted let's go back to the phones though and uh, rejoining us we're going to talk some turkey with bob hicks good morning again bob good morning you know if we go back to when you and i we used to do full radio shows where you'd come in the studio and calling right over the microphone and we've been talking turkey for uh, well over 20 years i know we haven't when we started turkey hunting it was still a hardcore group of people and the turkey population was limited but it was being supplemented boy fast forward 20 years and now things have changed we talked about the fact that the pheasant hunting in the last couple of years has been a little
3: difficult turkeys are just the opposite story aren't they you know the the turkeys in Colorado, especially Terry, have you know since I started turkey hunting have just exploded throughout the state. You know um, all you know and our our mountain birds we've always had our mountain birds, but out on the eastern plains, um, you know our, our our growth of turkeys and the uh, opportunities to Colorado turkey hunters has just grown tremendously. And our our turkeys out where I live along the South Platte River are doing fantastic. Uh, they're doing great along the eastern plains um, on the, all the dry riverbeds out there. It's 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 really been spectacular to watch the last 20 years. Now, people are
0: looking. They're just started. They're new to turkey hunting or they haven't been out much, haven't been very successful. What should they look for in a place to hunt? How do you get access to some places? And what do you recommend?
3: Well, you know, if you're a new turkey hunter... Um, you know, in, in my day when I had the store, you know, I used to do a lot of seminars. And, you know, Colorado Parks and Wildlife also hosts a series of seminars. Um, I would recommend they, they look at trying to do some of that online stuff that they do. i check with some of the outdoor retailers. Hopefully some of those stores are doing some seminars. Um, you know, the basics with turkey hunting are, um, you know, when I started, like, I was mentored by a great turkey hunter that, Put me under his wing and really showed me the ropes, but you know you have to have hundred percent camouflage. you have to pattern your shotgun uh, most you know you can't hunt them with a bow in Colorado it's illegal to hunt turkeys with a rifle um, so you use your shotgun and you want to go out and get a turkey pattern and and you don't want to use your your pheasant hunting shells. there are specific shells for turkeys. They're a big bird. Um, you don't try to shoot them in the body. You try to shoot them in the neck and the head. Um, and then there are some basic turkey calls. Uh, there's a wood wood box call, which is one of the easiest calls to master. There's a, a slate call. These are what we call friction calls that are pretty easy to learn how, how to use. The hardest thing with those two calls is it ties up your hands, and turkeys have an incredible... Set of eyes, um, they can spot movement even with one hundred percent camouflage. And when you really get into it, um, and there's a lot of people that are elk hunters and archery nowadays, and know how to use the the mouth calls. You know, mastering the mouth call will take you to that next level. So it's just learning a few calls. You don't have to be a world champion caller. There's a call called a clock, a yelp, and a purr. If you can do one or two of those calls you can call in a, a big male turkey
0: now where should i start looking to hunt now that's too late to get in on the draw so the draw i'd have to do an over the counter if but even if i have a drawer there's certain of course if i have a draw i'm limited but what type of habitats if i'm starting out should i look to start in the mountains or should i look to start out in the riverbeds
3: well most of eastern Colorado is is all a draw unless you get permission in on private property you can buy an over the counter tag for parts of Eastern Colorado, but that is a hundred percent private property any of the state properties in eastern Colorado are part of a draw that we put in in February for to draw those tags so um if you're If you're out of the Denver metropolitan area, you know, we have a lot of turkeys along the front range, you know, in our foothills all the way down to New Mexico. The further south you go toward Trinidad and Canyon City, um, the more turkeys there are. Um, I was lucky and harvested several turkeys in the Rampart Range um, going up toward Deckers. Um, Not a ton of turkeys, but they're up there there's a little bit of hunting pressure, but typically only the first couple weekends. And our season goes for six or seven weeks. And the way our snowpack is, Terry, uh, when it opens, there's still going to be need uh, waist-deep snow up there. So I think there's going to be great turkey hunting in our front range this year in late April and early May. Um, and, you know, it's it's a matter of, Reaching out to the parks and wildlife folks, talking to some of those biologists, getting some ideas. But, you know, I hunted several years down um, by Westcliff, lots of turkeys, lots of turkey hunters. And where I was successful is going later in the season during the week to harvest those birds. Now, is there, do you scout a lot pre
0: season when you're hunting turkeys? And if you do, when do you need to start that?
3: You know, scouting for all hunting is, is important. Um, you know, I, I hunt turkeys in the Midwest, you know, Eastern Colorado, Nebraska, Kansas, the open great plains and that country, you know, binoculars are my most important tool because the turkeys will roost in the river bottoms. And then, you know, they fly down in the morning and then they usually migrate out of those. And, you know, of course, we don't have six foot high corn, so you can see them. They're going to be in flocks of, anywhere from five to eight birds to as many as 30 or 40, especially early in the season. Um, And then in our mountains, you know, we're usually going to have snow around up until May. Um, Even if it melts, we'll get those small spring snowstorms and and looking for tracks in the snow has been one of the best things I've ever done. And then um, along with the calls we use to call in turkeys, Terry... We have a group of calls we use that are called locator calls. Um, The the top ones are a crow call, an owl call, or a coyote howler. And what you're trying to do is it's called a shock gobble. You You blast a crow call really fast, really loud, and it shocks the turkey, and he'll gobble at it. And so I like to use those calls to try to get the turkey to give up his location without walking around the woods, you know, calling like a turkey. Um, Several reasons for that. A lot of times a turkey will hear your call, a turkey call, and he won't gobble. He'll just start coming in. And you're like, well, there's no turkeys here, and you start walking. All of a sudden you walk into one that was coming in silently. So that's just just from from experience. And then real quick on the coyote call, um, the coyote howler is – is one of the best locator calls that's ever been discovered. But only use it at night, right at sunset, um, because it's a predator. You know, they won't gobble at 10 o'clock in the morning. But at 6 o'clock at night, and they're sitting in the tree, they will gobble their heads off. So it's a great call to use everywhere to get the birds to respond. Bob, we are running out of time, but we obviously have just barely
0: touched this subject. I think when we get closer to the season, we should get you on for a longer segment. Let's just talk turkey hunting prior to the season, maybe in late March. You up for that?
3: Absolutely. And I just want to say, like I always do, Terry, how much I appreciate what you you and Karen do for all the sportsmen and women in Colorado and all the conservation groups. You're you're a true hero of mine. And I just can't say enough good things about you, and thank you so much for inviting me on today. Well, that's very kind words. We try to do our part, but thank you
0: so much, and I'll get in touch with you. We'll look at something in late March, and we'll talk turkey for an extended period of time. Thank you, Terry. You bet. Bob Hicks. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, Nate Zelensky's is going to join us, and there's somebody who wants to know about ice fishing on Chatfield. He's sitting on the ice... Listening to us right now. So we'll help. Hopefully, we'll answer that question on Terry Wicks from Outdoors on 1043 The Fan.